Amy Jill Levine and, Bill, and Ben Witherington are New Testament scholars, but they have very different backgrounds. Amy Jill describes herself as a progressive agnostic Jew. Ben Witherington describes himself as a conservative evangelical Christian. They've written together a commentary on the Gospel of Luke. And it's a fascinating thing to read, read through because oftentimes you'll see their arguments in print. Amy Jill believes this is what Jesus means here. Ben will say, I think this is what he believes. And it's fascinating to watch these two scholars of the Bible uh, argue in a way that's respectful and, and, and honors the differences of opinion. It's kind of a model in some ways, if not for the United States of America, at least for the church, where we can promise to have conversations with each other that come from divergent and different views, disagreeing, but never devolving down into a fight. <clears throat> One thing they do have in common is they both grew up at a time in the United States of America when every school day began with saying the Pledge of Allegiance, singing the Star-Spangled Banner, and reciting the Lord's Prayer. Now, Amy Jill says it didn't really bother her, as a, bother her as a little Jewish girl because the Lord's Prayer sounded very much like the prayers that were spoken at her synagogue. Now, they never said the Lord's Prayer, of course, at the synagogue, but she heard Jewish themes in this prayer, the naming of God as Father, the, the divinity of the holy name, the need for daily bread. These were themes that you could find in Jewish prayers oftentimes, oftentimes find them. In fact, she even argues in that commentary I mentioned that Jesus' prayer, the Lord's Prayer, which we just heard Luke's version of, is a thoroughly Jewish prayer, which is kind of not a surprise. Jesus was a Jew. His disciples, his first disciples, his first followers were Jewish. So, of course, it's a Jewish prayer. She also says that when she was a little girl and she first learned the prayer, she used to pray one section like this, lead us not into Penn Station. <laughs> she said it made total sense to her as a little girl because she'd been to Penn Station before and it was crowded and busy with hundreds and thousands of people and she might get lost. So she certainly wanted to pray, Father, don't lead me into Penn Station. I, I read about another child, a four-year-old boy last week, who prayed this way in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trash baskets as we forgive those who put trash in our baskets. Now think about that for a moment. It's not just funny and cute, it's theologically accurate. Don't raise your hand, but anybody got a trash in your life? Anybody got any trashy things that you're like, oh my gosh, do I need forgiveness? Or have anybody ever had somebody put trash on you? in a spirit of meanness or, yeah, my sermon series, I think, maybe, January of next year will be, forgive us our trash baskets. And we might even give out little trash baskets as trinkets as you walk out the door to remind us. You know, the topic of prayer, generally speaking, isn't something that I get into conversations with people about around the table in, in casual conversations. Oh, to be sure, many people come to me and ask how to pray. Can you teach me how to pray? Or I'm not sure how to pray. Or I don't really ever pray. And what does that mean? Those conversations happen in my office, but I'm talking about at the dinner table with my family or with friends out to dinner and such. Rarely do we talk about prayer and what it means and how to do it and that sort of thing. But it's been interesting in the last few weeks how prayer has become a topic in the United States of America. I'm sure you're aware of the recent decision by the Supreme Court to grant a high school football coach and teacher, 
the right to lead a prayer after the game is over out on the 50-yard line. Now, I'm not a legal expert. My training is in, is in theology. I went to seminary. I, I, I trust that the justices brought their full selves to this, to this moment. I, I hope that indeed they brought their best legal minds and intellectual arguments as they discussed it with each other, preparing for their vote. I pray for them regularly here in the United States to work well and do well and lead, lead well. But I also hope that if a Muslim friend of ours or Buddhist, or Jew, Hindu, some other non-Christian religion, wanted to lead a public prayer after the football game at the 50-yard line, that he or she would be allowed to do so as well. What is interesting to me, as one trained in theology, is how oftentimes some of Jesus' most ardent, vociferous followers forget some of the things he taught, especially about prayer and in public. Here's a quote from Matthew 6. Let's put it on the screen. And whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that they may be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But whenever you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. Whenever you pray, go into your room and shut the door. Now, if this irritates you that I'm bringing this up, send your emails to Jesus. <laughs> These are his words. We in this congregation have been following the teachings of Christ since our earliest foundation and we'll continue to listen to him. But the Lord's Prayer itself, I think, is probably the most well-known prayer in all of Christianity. In churches like ours, where we would be called and described as a part of a mainline denomination, the United Church of Christ, the Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. We're similar to Presbyterians and Methodists and Lutherans and Episcopalians and American Baptists. All of them share a more formal style of worship like we practice here. And I'm certain the majority of them, the overwhelming majority of them, recite the Lord's Prayer on Sundays, just as we did a few moments ago. The more, more evangelical, informal style of denominations and worshiping congregations tend not to use the repetition of the Lord's Prayer in their worship services. But I'm almost certain if we had 15 folks from one of those churches uh, stand up right now, they could say the Lord's Prayer. In fact, in our own church, when we started a, a casual, informal service on Sunday nights over in Grace Hall, we did not include the Lord's Prayer. And after about three or four weeks, I probably had a dozen or more people say to me, I really miss the Lord's Prayer. I know it's a contemporary service, but could we add it in? And of course, we did. This prayer is most likely the most well-known prayer. Did you notice that Luke's version was a little different from what we, what we pray? It's the shortest of all the versions that are out there, which means it most likely is Jesus's original teaching, which has been expanded and, and, and enlarged over the decades and, and centuries different also from Matthew's gospel. It's very different from the one that we use in this worship service. But all of those prayers begin with one thing, with one word that they all share in common. Do you remember? Our. Not my, but our. It's a communal prayer. It's a prayer of the people. 
It's a prayer spoken together in the community of faith. Communal prayers are powerful when done well. You know, when we have the prayers of the people, when Tim or I or any of our other pastors lead in, in the prayers of the people, the pastoral prayer, we are not praying my prayer. I'm praying on your behalf. I'm praying for the congregation. Now, to be sure, it's our, it's our content. We write our own prayers, and we are free to, to write them in whatever way we feel is best for the congregation, but the calling, the charge, is to pray on your behalf. Oh, maybe a current event or a topic on the front pages might work its way into the prayer, but again, it's a prayer for you. In another church that I served, they had lay worship leaders, and oftentimes the lay worship leader would give the, the, would give the pastoral prayer for the prayers of the people. And we oftentimes had to remind them, not only in their training, but throughout the year, remember, this isn't the place to express your opinion. This is the place to give a prayer on behalf of the people. Do you know where I've seen it at its most powerful? At memorial services, at funerals. There's something about that moment when the pastor climbs into the pulpit and she begins to pray. I've been in services where I could, I, I'm, I swear I could physically feel people leaning in, waiting, hoping for a word of grace, for a word of resurrection. Is it true? You can hear their thoughts. Is it true? The forgiveness of sin, the love of God, the resurrection, is it true? You know, we as a church, are never more like the church that Jesus calls us to be than when we gather in moments of pain and, and sorrow. It, we, we might think this way politically or think this way theologically and have difference of opinion on all sorts of things, but when we gather in grief as a community of faith, we're united in our sadness. On Friday, just two days ago, Julie and I said goodbye to our sweet dog, Layla. She was the embodiment of unconditional love. I took one of her photos from a few years ago, and I put it on Facebook. And I said those words, today we said goodbye to Layla, our sweet girl. She is indeed the embodiment of unconditional love. And I think there's up to almost 200 comments under my post. Maybe some of you here in the room commented, people saying, I, I, I'm with you in your pain. Losing a dog is so difficult. Prayers were spoken. All kinds of wonderful thoughts were expressed. I've read through the, the comments at least twice this weekend. That's the church at its best. That's the, the community of faith, even beyond this congregation, out into the, frankly, out into the world. That's who we are when we're at our best. That's what we look like. And by the way, um, I need to be clear about something. All dogs go to heaven. Now, you may disagree with me, and you may think that's not true, and it's the United States of America, and you're free to have your opinion, but you're still wrong, <laughs> just so we're clear. It's that communal moment where we find the strength to truly be the ones that God calls us to be. Now, I also want to note this about the prayer. Some folks ask me about the phrase, our Father. If you prefer, when we recite that prayer, to say our mother or our parent or holy one, 
our Holy One. Please feel free to do that on your own as you recite the prayer with the congregation. You know, don't you, that there are many feminine and motherly images of God found throughout the Bible. And not just feminine and motherly, but also God is seen as a rock, as a fortress, as a mighty eagle, as a, as a strong sense of support and encouragement. All metaphors abound for who God is. But Isaiah says that God is like a mother who cares for her child. In the book of Deuteronomy, there's the instruction to remember the God who gave birth to you. Jesus says at one point that God is like a mother hen who wants to cover her chicks with her wings. So feel free to say that indeed. But as you heard the rest of the text this morning, after after the presentation of the Lord's Prayer, then there's some interpretation from Jesus about what all of that means. There's that strange parable about the the friend at midnight, and, and trust me on this, most New Testament scholars have no idea exactly how to interpret that or to understand it. The Greek is very confusing. My Greek is weak, but even I can see that it's very confusing and and makes no sense. It's strange and unusual. And if you agreed as you heard Tim reading that, well, you're now qualified to be a New Testament scholar. And then there's there's that other interesting note in there about scorpions and eggs and and all of that. The, the, The interpretation that I think is most important for us, at least in this moment, is when Jesus says, ask, seek, knock. These imperatives are saying to us, do not ever give up. Do not ever hesitate to ask, seek, knock. And if you have no faith, if you've forgotten how to believe in God, if you no longer believe in God, say that too. Say it as as open and as honestly as you possibly can. Ask, seek, Knock, be honest, be open, be true, be real. Just as we said to the children earlier in the children's moment, this is not a place where you have to worry about being theologically appropriate or understanding the right okie-dokie words to say. Be who you are. Ask, seek, and knock. Fred Craddock tells a story of a time he was a a speaker at a convention for African-American pastors. There were hundreds of pastors from all over the country at at this convention, and Fred was speaking the next day, and so he came early to, to listen to the keynote speech that night. It was a young African-American pastor who just gotten ordained, just finished seminary, and this pastor was giving a passionate sermon about we need to work harder, we need to fight more for justice, we need to bring justice to this land, and my friends, you need to stand up, and we need to continue to fight together. It's a beautiful sermon, Fred said. But then the next speaker on the night was this grizzled old African-American pastor in his 80s, He stepped into the pulpit and he said, my friend, your passion is beautiful. Your sermon was spot on, but please understand, this old pastor said, I and many of my colleagues have been standing for decade upon decade, knocking, knocking, knocking at the doors of justice, demanding they be opened until our hands were covered in blood. Ask, seek, knock. On Friday morning, with our dog Layla, Julie and I were at the veterinarian's office, sitting on the floor with her. We'd brought her bed from home. Dr. Vesper, the vet, came in. Some of you know Dick, Dick Vesper. He's a veterinarian, most passionate pastoral veterinarian he is like a minister, uh, veterinarian we've ever met. He came in and sat down on the floor with us. 
explained what was going to happen next. And I decided to knock on heaven's door. And I said a quiet, silent prayer. God, when Layla arrives, tell her we love her. Now, when I preach a sermon like this, I know there are questions in the congregation. I know there are questions like, does prayer really matter? Why doesn't God answer all of our prayers? Where is God when I really need to feel God's presence? When I'm going through a tough and difficult time, it feels as though God is not there at all. Someone once said to me several years ago in another, in another church, I prayed for my mom, I prayed for her, and I prayed for her, and she died anyway. What's the point of prayer? These are hard questions, and some of you have said them to me through tears, sometimes through clenched teeth. My friend Adam, pastor in Kansas City, wrote a book titled Why. Mary Kate, our minister of pastoral care, is using that with her care ministers. It's a beautiful book. I highly recommend it to you. He tells a story in there about a woman in his congregation who was trying to conceive. She and her husband had gone through all kinds of fertility clinics, tests, procedures, all these sorts of things, and finally, after years of trying, she's finally conceived. She's pregnant. But in the fifth month, she becomes very ill. And the doctor says, if you carry this child to full term, you will likely die. The woman is willing to take the risk, but the rest of her family says, no, we cannot. We just cannot. And so the baby is brought into the world and it's unable to survive. The child dies. Weeks later, the mother, the woman, wrote to my friend Adam. She wrote a long letter to him, but at the center, at the heart of this letter was the question, what good is God? Sit with that for a moment. Have you asked that question before? Have you wondered where God is in the midst of crisis, pain, sorrow, and fear? What good is God? Adam says that he found a website, I won't call it a Christian one, but he found a website that claimed to say that the reason God didn't answer prayer may be one of these. Your faith and focus isn't on the Lord. Perhaps you have unconfessed sin. Maybe your faith is weak. And my friend Adam says, I consider that list obscene. And I agree. I have a stronger word, but it's obscene. It's an obscene list. So what do we do with this? How, how do we face this? Jesus is the one who invites us to ask, to seek, and to knock. Well, maybe what we need to do is look more closely at the life of Jesus in prayer. Ben Witherington, that conservative evangelical that I noted at the beginning of the sermon, he has a beautiful idea in that commentary that he and Amy Jill wrote. He calls it the imitatio Christi, the imitatio Christi, the imitation of Christ. <clears throat> That if we look at Jesus in his life of prayer, we see him praying all the time, especially in the Gospel of Luke. He prays more in Luke than the other three Gospels. 
What are, his, what are his prayers? Prayers of thanks, prayers for meals, prayers for healing, prayers for new life. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays for a miracle. And my friend Adam says that he believes in miracles, but look what happens to Jesus. Jesus prays for a miracle. Lord, if there's any other way, he's about to be betrayed and arrested. If there's any other way, show it to me. And there's nothing but silence from heaven. On the cross, Jesus, surrounded by his tormentors, his torturers, his executioners, prays, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And then in, gospel, in Matthew's gospel, just before his final breath, my God, my God, why? Do you see the life of Christ in prayer is a model for us to bring our full selves to those moments, to be open and honest, to name the pain, the fear, the anger, the lack of belief, whatever it might be, and to give ourselves over to God in that way. And then Adam says this, he's, it's very fascinating what he says. Do you know how God answers prayers most of the time? Adam believes in miracles, but most of the time, what does God do in answer to prayer? God sends us, you and me. You hear there's a crisis with your neighbor, friends, you show up. You hear there's a need at the heart-to-heart -heart food pantry, you bring, you bring food to donate. You make sure there's enough money to fund additional food being brought in so that people, especially back in the pandemic, would have enough to eat. You were an answer to prayer of how many hundreds and even thousands of families during the last two years who woke up in the morning and said, God, we don't have any food. What God does in answer to prayer is God sends us. And so how do we pray? The great rabbi Harold Kushner says, we don't pray for God to magically take our problems away. No, we pray for courage to face whatever it is. We pray for strength to name our pain, to name our joys, to name anything and everything. And we pray for grace, that we will have the grace to walk side by side with each other through whatever is before us. Our Father, our Mother, our Holy One, give us courage, give us strength, give us grace. Amen.